0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac, or drop a crispy fry between the car seats, or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba at participating McDonald's.
2: Look, Bumble knows
0: you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
3: Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits. A uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet tarts, dare to combine.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Hans Holbein the Younger's paintings were so realistic that when people saw his his life-sized mural of Henry VIII at Whitehall Palace, they jumped with fright, thinking that the king was in the room with them. For today's podcast, our sub-editor Rhiannon Davies spoke to Franny Moyle, who's released a new book exploring the mesmerising artworks that Holbein created, as well as the turbulent times he lived through.
4: So my first question is a really simple back-to-basics one, and it is, who was Hans Holbein and what period did he live in?
2: So Hans Holbein the Younger was born in 1497 and he died in 1543. So he was uh, living at a time which I suppose most historians would now call the sort of early modern period. And he was really one of the most celebrated, if, if not the most celebrated, artist in uh, Northern Europe during his lifetime, who traveled from his homeland uh, on the continent to become Henry VIII's court painter, his, the king's painter. And it is really through Holbein's eyes, I think, that we see Henry VIII's court today. All those pictures of Henry VIII, if one imagines the king, it's probably Holbein's depiction of him that will pop into your mind's eye.
4: And you say in your book that his work shows the Tudor world like no other. Why do you think this is? Well, Holbein
2: had terrific access to the most significant men and women of his day. So what he provides us with, certainly in terms of the English court, is a really up close and personal view of the the leading men and women and he he was such a fine portrait artist and his paintings are so lifelike so in a way you really are face to face with long-lost monarchs queens uh courtiers movers and shakers so I think that is one aspect of his work that reveals the, the the Tudor world his work in England but if you sort of take uh his entire career. His work tells the story of Europe transforming at that time as well, because he started, like so many artists, as someone painting devotional work for traditional Catholic clients. And as the, what we now call the Protestant Revolution, swept across Europe, it sort of swept Holbein with him. And his whole work had to change and adapt, essentially away from the religious uh, works he had painted, if you like, in a Catholic Germany and a Catholic Switzerland, to the more secular art that he develops for Protestant clients. Protestant, obviously, is a, is a sl- an anachronism, but for want of a better word. And a secular art that served the purposes of Henry's court.
4: You mentioned that his paintings are very lifelike, and this is something that you really bring to life in your book. You really hammer home that paintings were the main way that people would, would see people they'd never met. And the fact that his paintings are so realistic was something that seemed to be quite rare at the time and was really celebrated. Do you think that's one of the reasons
2: why he was such a popular painter? Without a doubt. I mean, Holbein's paintings today, if you can get to see some of them, and there are some uh, in the uh, National Gallery, for example, Um, if you can get to have a look face-to-face with Holbein's paintings, I guarantee you a tingle will go down your spine because it's not that his painting was lifelike in comparison to most of the art of the time. His painting in, in the whole history of art is some of the most lifelike we we have ever enjoyed. He is, you know, one of the greatest uh, artists in that respect. But I think the other thing that people need to think is is to try and cast themselves back in time into what painting was like back in the sixteenth um, century. I mean, for a start, today we're so used to being able to go to galleries. We see everything in reproduction. We're surrounded by television and magazine and books and. Paintings feel very accessible, but then they were rare. People would see them in church. They would see them in public buildings. And if people were wealthy, they would be able to commission paintings. So they were much more like sort of precious jewelry. Um, They would have been considered an event. Quite often they were concealed in cabinets or books and you'd open shutters or draw back a, a curtain to look at them. And so... If you think of that, if you think of the rarity of seeing a painting and then a curtain is drawn back and you see something that is really lifelike, that would have been a real novelty, a real event, a real shock to the system for for Holbein's original clientele. Holbein isn't the
4: only painter in his family. His father, Hans Holbein the Elder, is incredibly famous in his own right. What's their relationship like? Holbein was part
2: of a long-established family of artists, if you like, or craftspeople. Um, His father was indeed Hans Holbein the Elder, who was a really successful painter in Bavaria, um, where Holbein was born. Um, They were based, Hans Holbein the Elder, and his workshop was based in the city of Augsburg. And he was one of the most celebrated painters of his day. His work was nearly all devotional work, um, religious work for the religious institutions. And of course, his um, influence on Holbein was immense in lots of ways. I mean, at a very simple level, he was trained by his father. Holbein the Younger was trained by Holbein the Elder. He would have worked as a small boy in his workshop, grinding pigments. This is long before paints just came in tubes grinding pigments, washing brushes, prepping wood, because people were painting largely on wood then, um, so providing a ground on it. So he learned the skills of his trade very early on from his father. But I think his father gave him much more than just the basic sort of toolkit. His father was the most wonderfully playful artist, and he spent a lot of effort trying to make his religious work accessible to the widest possible audience. And he did this by using very sort of playful techniques where he would almost compress time, where he'd fuse the biblical world he was portraying with the contemporary world. So, for example, um, in a, a, an altarpiece he painted uh, for St. Afra, which is now in Basel's museum, he paints the virgin it's the death of the virgin and he paints the virgin wearing a contemporary fabric so that she feels proximate and it's a very costly contemporary fabric so it signals you know her importance her preciousness but also in that picture there's a rosary hanging on the wall which is of course an anachronism because this is long before rosaries <laughs> we're in you know the biblical era so You know, this. he he places, uh, he compresses the then and the now. And in doing that, he pulls, you know, the people of Augsburg in 1498 or whenever they were viewing that particular work into the biblical past. Now, Holbein, the younger, would expand on that idea of perspective and compression and different dimensions fusing together. I mean, the other thing his father was really notable for, was he was a, a portrait artist. Now, portraiture was only really emerging, you know uh, in Holbein the Elders era. And Holbein the Elder was a very good portrait artist and and he not only made portraits of some of the noble men and women of, of Augsburg, but he made sure that his religious works were filled with characterful faces, which undoubtedly he drew, drew from life. And again, that skill of looking and seeing and capturing something that feels really lifelike was seeded by the father in the son. I think in terms of their relationship, I, I think it was a complex one. There is some evidence that Holbein the Elder Really understood how supremely talented his young son was and was, in fact, something of a child prodigy. And this is suggested by the fact that he paints portraits of his his son, Little Hands, into some of his religious works. And he does so um, in such a way um, that really draws attention to this young child, as if saying, Hey, guys, here he is. Remember, the prodigy from Augsburg, uh, my, my son? Um, there's a very famous depiction of, of this that um, Holbein the Elder painted in 1504 when Hans would have been seven, and it's in a, a religious painting, um, and it's in a scene um, when St. Paul is being baptised and Holbein the Elder paints himself and his two sons, because Hans had a brother called Ambrosius. But Holbein the Elder is pointing at Holbein the Younger, and Ambrosius is embracing him. So the whole family is sort of focusing on this little boy. But one of the discoveries I made was that there was a portrait smuggled into a painting even two years earlier by Hans Holbein um, the Elder of a five-year-old Hans Holbein, the younger. And this time he stands solo uh, in the center of a a, a composition in a a, a memorial painting, the the Walther Memorial. And again, there is this terrific focus on this little boy. And so I think that cannot just be an indication that his father adored him, it has to say something about this child was already showing some sort of exceptional talent. So I think Holbein the Elder adored his son and saw him as, um, if, if if you like, a, 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 the workshop's great future, the Holbein workshop's great future. This was the the boy who could, you know, take the family to new heights. The tragedy, though, of their relationship is that. Holbein, the elder, belonged to a generation of artists that, despite their brilliance, were quite sort of low down, if you like, on the social ladder. They were poorly paid. They were really exploited by patrons. And a lot of them fell into um, debt. I mean, they really struggled. Holbein, the elder's direct contemporary was Albrecht Dürer. You know, the other great painter of the Northern Renaissance, and he actually said, "I'm going to give up painting and just work on prints because painting, I just can't make my make ends meet." And certainly, by the time Hans Holbein the Younger was in his teens, his father was in terrible debt, and he had to actually leave Augsburg with sort of um, his creditors sort of pursuing him. Um, And so there is some tragedy in that relationship. I think, I suspect, you know, Holbein, the younger, was so driven. He was so ambitious. And of course, that is partly because he was just a talented and compelled artist. But I think also um, there was this terrible um, strain to earn money and not... um, Die a a practical pauper like like his father.
4: One of the key themes of your book is humanism. For any of our listeners who aren't familiar with this, can you very briefly tell us what humanism is?
2: So, Holbein the Younger was born into a moment when humanism was uh, becoming very popular in in Germany, where he was born, and, and elsewhere on the continent. And humanism was a movement really about rediscovering the classical past. Um, an interest in the classical past, both in terms of classical literature, but also in terms of excavations and rediscovery. So, in a way, humanism and the Renaissance go hand in hand in, in, in their interests in a classical past and what one could learn from a classical past, what the literature and the remnants of the antique might offer a modern world in in terms of philosophy and so on and so forth. So what we get in the way that translates, if you like, into artistic practice at that time was, for example, the interest in portraiture. The excavations across Europe had thrown up loads of little Roman medallions and portraits, again, all very lifelike, and so suddenly the interest in verisimilitude, the ability to create lifelike works of art grew. And those who could afford art, it was always a precious commodity, um, You know, wanted little portrait medallions cast. They wanted their portrait painted. I mean, the other influence we get, of course, is um, uh, classical motifs, um, classical imagery, Uh, particularly in architecture, for example, Um, uh, and you get that emerging as well. So, you know, portraiture, a particular type of motif, verisimilitude, but also, of course, an interest in Latin stories and Latin texts, those all bubble through and they all sort of emerge in in Holbein's work. And one of the key figures of humanism
4: is Erasmus and he is Holbein's first major patron how does this benefit holbein
2: yes he Erasmus is one of his m- major patrons but possibly arguably the most important early patron it's hard to understand just how famous Erasmus was today i mean you know he was an old monk a former monk and scholar and in a way, those are not terms that we equate with popularity today. Uh, I hope monks and scholars forgive me for saying so. But he was a, Erasmus was a superstar. He was a scholar who mined uh, classical texts, retranslated them, republished them, provided commentaries on them. But he, he there were sort of two sides to his output. One side was incredibly erudite an important work on tra- classical translations of the bible commentaries on the gospels and so on and so forth and on the church uh and on how people should behave you know he wrote he wrote um essays and books on you, you know how how Christianity should modernize itself what the true meaning you know the, how how Christian kings and Christian soldiers should behave. But on the flip side, he had a wonderful sense of humor. He was a sort of satirist and he, he, he wanted to be popular and famous. So he wrote a book called Adages, which was very, very popular, where he found all the old sayings and repurposed them for the new generation. So, um, you know, a rolling stone gathers moss. So, you know, these sorts of things that are all part of our sort of um, phraseology today. And that was very successful. The other publication uh, by Erasmus that was incredibly popular was In Praise of Folly, which was a sort of satirical uh, commentary on the stupidness of mankind. And a lot of it had a real go at the Catholic Church because although Erasmus was a devoted Catholic and remained devoted to the Catholic Church throughout his life, nevertheless, He saw it needed reform. He he was fully aware that there were many issues with the Catholic Church. And in praise of folly, has a real go at, you know, some of what what Erasmus saw as the stupidities and uh, corrupt elements of, of, of the church. So he was very, very, very famous. And in one of those wonderful sort of miracles of coincidence, Erasmus and Holbein found themselves in the same City, which was Basel in Switzerland or Baal in Switzerland um, around 1515 1516 uh, Erasmus had just issued a new edition of In Praise of Folly. Holbein, desperate to make a mark, said, can I illustrate it? Did, a little, did little sort of ink interpretations, little vignettes, which Erasmus loved. And then some years later, when Erasmus found himself back in, in that city in Baal, suddenly he commissioned Holbein a whole series of portraits that went off around the world, um, a new device which became an emblem that was reproduced in Erasmus's publications. And so, in a way, the association at that point between Erasmus and Holbein really served Holbein well. You know, it, 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 uh, it, it raised his profile considerably.
4: And he opens lots of doors for Holbein, doesn't he? Because he's instrumental in Holbein going to England.
2: Absolutely. Holbein would not have... Well, we don't know if Holbein would have got to England without Erasmus, but he certainly went to uh, England with Erasmus's help. Erasmus knew everybody. He knew all the kings, princes, queens of Europe. And when Holbein decided he wanted to try his luck in England, he went to Erasmus, and Erasmus gave him a whole series of introductory letters, not only that would help his journey across Europe, so he had places to stay and so on and so forth, but that gave him an introduction to some of the most important people in the Tudor court, not least Sir Thomas More who was a great great friend of Erasmus's, and so in 1526, when Holbein first came to England, he turned up at Chelsea, where Sir Thomas More was was living, and became part of More's household. And it was an, a, a you know it was a sort of fast track basically into into the Tudor court.
4: And before we come on to explore Holbein's time in the Judah court, I'd really like to go back ever so slightly and look at his reasons for deciding to leave. So as you mentioned in a previous answer, the Protestant Reformation is sweeping across Europe. So in Basel, where Holbein is living, there is this big rise in um, more evangelical Protestantism, and he feels like he has to leave.
2: Can you tell us a bit more about this? So in 1517 Martin Luther pinned his theses to the doors of a church in Wittenberg. Now Martin Luther was a a, a scholar uh and uh, a, a, a monk and as I'm I'm sure your um your audience will will know he saw there were huge issues with the Catholic Church and his uh railing against the Church in these theses, his condemnation of their the way they raised money through indulgences and so on and so forth, um, began what we now understand as the Reformation, as, as the, the rise of what we now call Protestantism. Now in 1517, um, Holbein was just 20 and not so far away. He was in Basel in Switzerland by this point where he'd moved after the... Uh, Holbein workshop closed in Augsburg. Um, and it wasn't that long before versions of Lutherism um spread a- a- across Europe, and it wasn't that long before um in Basel it you know, its own version of Protestantism emerged. Um, it was being felt, I suppose, um In the early 1520s, um, there's evidence, you know, of of preachers, uh, pro-reform preachers in Basel, um, tensions in the city were emerging. Um, In the early 1520s, Basel was dominated by traditional Catholics. By that, I mean those in power, the members of the council, uh, and so on and so forth. And and Holbein's main clientele, because they were moneyed, were traditional Catholics. But as Protestantism uh, arose, um, there was, was a lot of rioting and unrest, and essentially Holbein's patrons fled. You know, they went to more friendly cities um, where their houses weren't going to get sort of ransacked and where they weren't going to get abused. And the other tragedy for Holbein was not only did all the clients he'd built up, all the money people disappear, but Protestantism took real issue with uh, what it saw as the worshipping of idols, That what it saw as a fault in the Catholic Church, that every saint you know, had his or her painting or statue and that people would worship at the foot of these saints without really thinking what that meant, you know, it, was a, it had become a ritual rather than a process of contemplation. And, and so there was a movement to remove these sort of what they considered Catholic idols. And so, you know, Holbein's work, uh, we imagine, was, was being pulled down, burnt, hidden. We know a lot of some of his greatest paintings, religious paintings, were literally hidden away out of view. So it was an incredibly difficult time for him to operate just as a business. Suddenly, painters were out of work in a way. Um, And the other thing is, with Protestantism came a sort of aesthetic that was, you know, rather plain, simple. You know, no no good Protestant was going to uh, commission a fancy portrait. That would have been considered a bit too indulgent. So All aspects of his career were under threat. Whereas in England at that time, in the 1520s, England was still a good old Catholic country, completely untouched by the Reformation. And so Holbein saw England as a place where he could work.
0: Still to come on the History Extra
2: podcast. And I think... Holbein was trying to convey, perhaps to Henry, something about the character of Anne of Cleves. I have no doubt that the way he portrayed her is how she looked. You know, factually, physically, that is an accurate portrait.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day
4: at sax.com. And coming on to England, how does Holbein first catch the eye of Henry VIII and work his way up to becoming the King's painter?
2: When Holbein arrived in England with letters of recommendation from Erasmus in his pocket, He went immediately to Sir Thomas More, who immediately said, "I will do whatever I can to help you." So he was really (laughs) under the eye. You know, he was at the center of Henry's court from 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 the off in a way because Henry's relationship with More at that point in 1526 was a very positive one. There are accounts that Henry would visit More's house in Chelsea, where Holbein. We, we think was resident at that time. Uh, so, you know, there was a good chance for uh, Henry to see um, Holbein's work. He did a, a portrait of Moore. He did a portrait of Moore and his family. He may well have painted some religious paintings for Moore's chapel. Um, he may have had, you know, there may have been other elements going, g- going on uh, in Moore's house that Henry could have seen. But what we do know is that almost instantly, within weeks of Holbein's arrival in London and at Chelsea, Henry was preparing to receive some French ambassadors and he wanted to stage a huge magnificence, a a, a sort of wonderful um, festivity. He planned jousting, a huge banqueting hall, uh, where there would be a most lavish uh, feast and uh, then a theater where there'd be a wonderful pageant. And uh, his plan was to build uh, temporary structures, a temporary banqueting hall and a temporary, temporary theater. And this would, have for the spring of 1527, to, to um, impress the French. Um, this was a time when you know, if, if we think this is only seven years after the field of the cloth of gold, this is a moment where um, transient magnificence was really important. The ability to conjure from a sort of muddy field, a sort of magnificent or inspiring structure was almost more impressive than inviting someone to uh, an extant palace in a, in a way. And Holbein was set to work almost, you know, practically as soon as he, 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 he landed in it. We think he arrived in the sort of winter, autumn, winter of 1526, you know, by February, 1527, he was hard at work on the festivities. um, Probably because uh, Sir Thomas More's brother-in-law was um, the producer or one of the producers of them. And so Again, he'd just been at the right place in the right time. Um, You know, everyone could see his talent. He would have brought his portfolio with him and and probably his fame preceded him as well. So there was Holbein. And so he was commissioned very initially to do these very important diplomatic festivities for for the King. And he did two things. Um, For the banqueting hall, he did a huge standalone painting of uh, the English defeating the French at a particular battle, which is kind of strange. And there was this sort of trick that the the hall was constructed with a sort of arch at one end, and everyone had their sumptuous banquet. And then as they were being led, as the diplomats were being led into the next sort of stage of the the event, which was to go to the theatre, they went through the arch, and Henry asked them to pause and turn round, And as they turned round, they saw this huge painting of uh, the, def- the, the, the French defeat, the Battle of the Spurs behind them, and it took their breath away. Now, there, there's no sk- schematic, no drawings of this, th- this that survive. But knowing Holbein's brilliance, not only at capturing people, but also at creating perspectival illusion, trompe l'oeil. He could make sort of magical buildings appear real. And, you know, you sort of reach and touch them and you realize they're not real. That space isn't there. He was a master of illusion. So one imagines that what they saw was this sort of really persuasive image of a battlefield receding perhaps away from them um, that, that the French said was, you know, it was as if they were there again. And then, as the French progressed, they went into the banqueting hall where Holbein had created this huge ceiling with a sort of map of the world and the stars, um, probably with different layers of gauze. So you might have had sort of stars and different um, um, elements of um, astrological elements or, you know, elements of the zodiac uh, layered over a sort of atlas, which, again, was apparently breathtaking. So, you know… Henry was in the centre of Holbein's brilliance from the moment Holbein arrived in
4: in London. And the Protestant Reformation does catch up with Holbein when he's in England. How does he navigate the constant changing of who's in favour, who's out of favour? Because Henry's court is quite a dangerous place to be. If you're a favourite of Henry, it might not always turn out well for you. How does he manage
2: to stay on almost everyone's good side? I think it's worth reminding people and this was something that that when I embarked on my book I hadn't really fully appreciated was that just how mercurial Henry VIII was when it came to religion. I mean one equates the reformation with Henry VIII. But really Henry VIII remained a devoted catholic his entire life and it was a sort of sort of pragmatic politics in a way, his desire to marry Anne Boleyn, that, that um, you know, forged the English church as a way of sidelining the Pope. But from that moment on, you know, when he, he sort of created this new Church of England in order to enable a marriage, although reformers saw this as an opportunity for reform, Henry would just go one way and another. One minute he was pro-reform, the next minute he wasn't. And there are lots of, um, you know, and I'm simplifying this a little bit, but, you know, there were lots of accounts at the time that the the general populace didn't know whether they were coming or going. They didn't know whether they'd have their heads cut off for being anti-Pope or whether they'd have their, you know, heads cut off for being pro-Pope. It could, you know, depending which way, which day it was, Wednesday or Tuesday. Um, so Holbein entered this sort of maelstrom of factionalism, with he- which he- Henry one mom- moment was pro one faction, next moment pro another. I think he navigated it in, in a number of ways. I think he was a brilliant politician with a small P or diplomat. He must have been charming, and I suspect that's something he, he learned from his father. Henry talks about my beloved Holbein. When Holbein's uncle dies, in his his uncle Sigmund dies in his will, he talks about again my most beloved, you know, Holbein. So that he must have been incredibly charismatic, and I think that was helpful. But the other thing, so, so charisma, really though, nonpartisan. I think Holbein kept his own beliefs incredibly. Uh, close. And uh, again, as I'm saying, I think that's part of his skill as a diplomat. He, he painted both sides of the fence the whole time. Art was work. It wasn't about being part of a faction. I also think he built a lot of ambiguity into his work. I mean, he does. Um, he is responsible for, both in England and in Basel, pro, arguably pro-Lutheran imagery and yet, you could always see him arguing his way out and saying, "No, I'm mocking Luther here. This isn't pro. This is me satirizing him." There was also in his work enough space um, that 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 um, the meaning of the work could rest in the eye of the beholder. If you see what I mean, he was incredibly clever like that in building am- ambiguity into his work. So, you know, I think he could wriggle round and n- navigate um uh, the factionalism uh, of the court be it political or religious um and he you know he must have been a master at that i have to say because it was toxic that court
4: and there are two paintings of his in particular that I'd like to get your insights into. And the first one is the mural that he paints at Whitehall Palace. And this shows the Tudor dynasty. Uh, So obviously, Henry VIII is included in that. And you write about this in such an engaging way. Could you tell us how he presents
2: this monarch in this painting? The great image that I bet your listeners will know of Henry by Holbein was one that belonged to a mural that, alas, was burnt down in the seventeenth century uh, with the Palace of Whitehall when that burned. The great figure of Henry standing with his hands sort of just in front of his hips, his great big wide shoulders, looking straight out, his sort of feet wide apart. He's like Atlas. That image was uh, the image de- devised of of Henry for a great mural in the Palace of, of Whitehall. It was really the pinnacle of Holbein's career, this commission. I mean, Whitehall was Henry's project in the early 1530s. It was the palace he was planning to be the most impressive, you know, palace, his his centre in London. And this was for the very sort of inner sanctum of, of the palace. And, and it was a huge mural showing uh, Henry, his father and his father on one side, um, Henry's mother and his wife of that time, Jane Seymour, on the other. And they are arranged around a sort of stone monument on which it's engraved. Uh, there's a sort of engraving that invites the viewer to consider you know, who is the greatest, the father or the son, i.e., who should stand on the monument? It's as if they're all standing around and there's a sort of space waiting for a statue to to, to, to go up. It was life size. Uh this the, the figures in this mural were life size. And again, so realistic. And the figure of Henry, so terrifying apparently, that people would do a double take. You know, when they came in, they thought it was real, they thought they'd bumped to the king, they were terrified, and then of course. This was the great thing about Holbein, you know, this trickery. He was called cunning. He was so persuasive, his art, that you thought you were looking at a portion of the room and you thought the king was there. And then you would realise, oh, my goodness, no, it's just a painting of the king. But there would be that moment when art impinged on the real world, if you like, um, where what I call in my book the sort of imaginative space, you know, between what's real and not sort of is, is engaged it's an interesting painting, not only because you can see Holbein working uh, to create this figure of majesty and power in the figure of Henry um, the car the cartoon do- for this mural does exist um, it's currently on show at the National Gallery actually um, uh, though often. It's technically part of the National Portrait Gallery collection. Um, Anyway. um, And you can see in the cartoon, Henry is in three-quarter profile. His face is in three-quarter profile. But but by the time he came to paint the mural, he turned Henry's face, so it was full face, much more intimidating. Um, And he's the only figure full face. It's quite interesting. So it draws your attention to him. So I think in answer to the question on the you know, pedestal or the sort of stone monument, because you're drawn to Henry, because of his stance, because he's like Atlas, I think we all know the answer, who is the greater, who's going to stand on the monument. Well, it, you know, it's going to be Henry. But there are other strange things about that mural. I mean, it is a very, again, it doesn't exist anymore, but it exists that artists made copies of it. So we know what it looks like. And this sort of great big slab of stone in the middle of it, compositionally, is very peculiar. And my view, and this is only my view, is is that it is a some sort of memento mori, a reminder of death. Because although it, 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 it one, on the one hand, this is a plinth for a statue of the greatest Tudor monarch, it also looks like a tomb. So this is also a reminder, I think, that um you know uh, no one no one lives forever, even if their reputation um, and a painting of them persists. Holbein, you know puts lots of hidden meanings and sort of symbolic uh, um, layers in into his work. and you know that painting is 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 not short of them. Um, It's very interesting that just below Henry there's a little frieze of a figure of the god of war, um, Mars, Um, but the figure is being cut off at at the waist because of the architectural arrangement. But but again, there's an implication perhaps there that whilst the figure is supposed to sort of... Reinforce this terrifying image of Henry. It's also slightly emasculated. Again, this is what I mean about ambiguity. Surely Holbein would not dare suggest that his great patron was uh, in su- some way lacking. Um, and surely, if Henry said, Why is Mars cut off at the waist? Holbein would be able to say, Oh, well, sir, it's to show that you're standing on a podium, you know. You talked about
4: ambiguity in his paintings and one that can be read in so many different ways is his painting of Anne of Cleves, which I imagine most of our listeners, if you say the name Hans Holbein, the younger, you'll think of that picture of Anne of Cleves. How does he put in clues about what her personality might
2: be like? Um, The painting of Anne of Cleves is often just considered in isolation. But in fact, it was one of a series of paintings that Holbein had made in across sort of 1838 uh, and 39 when Henry was looking for a new wife after Jane Seymour had died. Jane Seymour had died in 1537 after giving birth to Henry's son. Cromwell, Henry's chief advisor at that point, was very keen that Henry didn't marry another english lady but actually make um a political marriage and henry was very much up for this there was there were there was a good reason at that time to forge an alliance um, because of the political map of europe at the time so holbein had actually gone and painted a Habsburg princess christina of denmark uh the duchess of milan same person um uh, he'd also painted a number of French princesses, Mary of Guise and her sisters. He'd also painted the Princess of Lorraine. Um, he'd been all over Europe. And so Henry had this sort of collection of beauties, of which Anne of Cleves was the last. And by the time that the painting of Anne of, of Cleves arrived, actually, The possibility of the other wives had fallen away, I have to say. He'd been turned down by Christina. Mary of Guise had married uh, the King of Scotland. Um, Her other sisters were unavailable. You know, it it, it sort of goes on. So he'd been very disappointed. Now, I, I say it was one of a series because I think it refers to the other portraits. It certainly refers in a way to the portrait of Christina of Denmark, which showed a woman in completely simple widow's uh, widows' clothing, a plain black silk coat, a hood. She's in the National Gallery if you want to look at her. She is beautiful. And she is shown in three-quarter profile, her gloves twisting in her hands in this very plain black garment. And yet she is so vivacious because the contrast is so great between her plain robes and her vivacious expression—that you know that Christina was something. You know, you know she was a character. Anne, by contrast, is shown laden, bejeweled with this heavy, ornate headdress, and you know the most ornate um, costume. And her face, by contrast, is expressionless. What's more, is it's full. For, she's not in three-quarter profile, i.e. with dimension. She is shown face-on, almost two-dimensional, without dimension. And I think Holbein was trying to convey, perhaps, to Henry, uh, something about the character of Anne of Cleves. I have no doubt that the way he portrayed her is how she looked, you know, factually, physically, that is an accurate portrait. But I think the choice of showing her heavily laden uh, in jewels, um, so that your attention is is more on the packaging, and it suggests that it's more, pa- y- y- you know, it's, it's she is more of a package and less of a person, if you see what I mean. And the fact that she she's shown in this very unusual full face. Um, uh, uh aspect i think that suggests she lacks dimension and indeed all the um notes that were sent by um henry's ambassadors and diplomats at the time you know said you know she's lovely and she's compliant but you know she doesn't play instruments and she can't speak um english and um she doesn't really have a sense of humor and so there was a hint you know all along and i think the painting is completely Complicit, you know. I think it it, it is um, it 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 also offers offers that hint. But like all these things, I think Holbein paints enough ambiguity into into the painting that he can Henry can see what he wants. You know, the warning is there in my view from Holbein that here is a woman without much character or at least whose character has been subsumed by you know, the way she's been brought up at court and she's j- just sort of compliant. Well, that might be a good thing. She's a blank canvas. But he also paints her in an aspect, this sort of full frontal aspect that was, if, if, if any woman was painted like that, it tended to be the Virgin Mary. And this was a time when Henry had a young child without a mother. Um, and so I think there might have also been a, a suggestion Um, at at some level that well you know in spite of her you know in spite of the fact she's a bit vanilla she's rather bland um nevertheless she is she would be an appropriate mother so I think he's offering the king you know a, a number of interpretations to cherry pick and Henry just went for it. And for my final question what would you say Holbein's legacy is? I think he has a number of legacies. I mean, for the historian, Holbein gives us uh, a window into the Tudor court and into 16th century Europe. Through Holbein's work, we can meet the greatest people on the continent, Erasmus um, in in the English court, Henry and his courtiers. Uh, And as You know, uh, that in itself is astonishing to to be able to see these people as they were in the garments they chose to be seen, holding the items that were important to them to signify their successes or their likes and dislikes, what there was on their mind. I think, if you like, in terms of his legacy to the history of art, um, his skill not only... uh, as as a, 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 a as a portraitist uh, able to draw with and paint with the most astonishing um uh verisimilitude he was a perspe- perspectival genius um he took perspective uh, and here you must think about the ambassadors and the floating skull the um which you know snaps into perspective when you stand at a particular uh, in a particular point in relation to the painting, he experimented with dimension um, in a way that I think was outstanding in his time. Um, and I talk a lot about that in the book because I think he 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 paints time as well as dimension. Um, we can't really go into that now, but um, so I think as a as a technical and conceptual, if you like, artist. Uh, uh he he was astounding in his exploration of dimension and man's place in space and in time and in the moment. Um he also his legacy for, for English art, and I have to say English, I wish I could say British, but it was at a time when um you know England and Scotland and uh, uh you know were very separate. Um and he was at the English court. Um, not at a Sorry. British court, um, uh, but in terms of English art, you know Holbein was one of the first great named painters. He took um, English art out of the medieval era, where painters, you know, didn't sign their work by and large, where their, their names are not really known, where they weren't considered geniuses, and he became celebrated. He was written about by the poets of his time, by his peers. He was our Leonardo, if you like. And he established a status for the artist, which hadn't really existed in England before that time. That was Franny Moyle. Her new book, The King's
0: Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein, is out now, published by Apollo. You can find a link in our show notes. And there's plenty more on Henry VIII and the Tudors at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Stephen Johnson will be speaking about his new BBC series, Extra Live, A Short History of Living Longer.